This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who didn't need to go from good to great because I was always great. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jim Collins, who has written several much admired books about how to grow and manage businesses, including Built to Last, Good to Great, and How the Mighty Fall. His new work is a companion piece to Good to Great called Turning the Flywheel, which is one of my favorite words. Jim, welcome to Rico Decode. It's a real privilege to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited. We had a little talk before this started about you read my book, my book, which has been out of print, I think, for, for a while. Um, but I wrote two books on AOL a yep. million hundred years ago, and you were pointing out some stuff around it. Uh, I was right yep. uh, in the early about the early internet because yep. um, these were books about how the internet happened essentially yep. they weren't you you do more about studies and how they how things fail and how things succeed and this was just a sort of a recounting of the yeah. growth and and then the the second chapter of AOL which was very negative mm-hmm. and it continued to be yeah. as it went down the line so I was, I was glad you read it I hadn't thought about it in years and you read back to me one of my quotes which was kind of funny yeah yeah well, and, and it's interesting because uh, I mean it's like you had a deep dive into this one really rich case, which was emblematic of of the entire sort of wave 1.0, right? And then through the AOL Time Warner thing. And at the end of your second book, you have this line uh, where you say, despite all that, everything that's happened in this story, I'm still in love with the digital future and its promise and the internet. But a lot's happened since you wrote that. That's right, project about 2003, yeah, something right, like that, yeah, right? Uh-huh, yeah. In the wake of everything that happened. Yeah. And so I just want to start with a question for you, which is, <laughs> have you fallen out of love? Are you still in love? A little bit. The boyfriend's being bad. The boyfriend's <laughs> bad. Or the girlfriend, however, I don't yeah. care. As you know, we're in San Francisco, so yeah. the goat is bad. Um, it's really a problematic thing because I, as much as I still love the internet, I really have been disappointed by some of its leaders and the way they've responded to some of the issues. And as you know, I've written a lot about it in the Times yep. and things like that. And so I love the con- – the, I want to get back to um, the loving of it. You yeah. know what I mean? Loving it. I, I was in the airport just recently and I saw uh, the book on um, the Wright brothers. Yeah. And I, I have this idea where I sit around and think you don't want to be the person at Kitty Hawk who sort of insults the – the wingspan. You mm-hmm. want to understand that they flew, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I'd like to get back to that. But right now, 
the tech community isn't helping. Hmm. I don't know. You know, they aren't helping in terms of they've gotten rich and fat and stupid. I just hmm. I don't know how else to put it. Anyway, let's talk about you and this book. So can you do your background, Joe, because yeah. you're really like your books have been sort of classics of how to get to that level. And, but also not sort of a lot of these books can be kind of kiss ass. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Aren't they wonderful? Aren't they smart? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your past books so people can get a context and what yeah. you tried to do here. Yeah. So um, quick sort of. I guess, arc of how I ended up here at age 61, mm -hmm. looking ahead to my next 30 years of work, but the last 30 years. So uh, I grew up in San Francisco and Boulder, Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, went off to Stanford undergraduate, studied mathematical sciences, which is computer science, math, statistics, operations, research, fairly short order, then went over to the Graduate School of Business. And because I had some really great mentors, uh, one of the themes of my life is who luck, great mm -hmm. people that have intersected with me. And I had two great mentors, Michael Ray and Bill Azir, who are both professors there, who went to bat for me and got me in to start teaching at Stanford when I was 30 years old in 1988. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the arc of these books began. Uh, I was teaching a course on entrepreneurship and small business. It was called Business 352. Why were you teaching it then? What was the impetus for that? There for, wasn't a lot of it around. No, there wasn't. Actually, well, there well, was and well, there wasn't. Well, actually, like it was very Packard. interesting because Bill Azir, who was teaching the course uh, before me, who was mm -hmm. a professor of mine, had a marvelous observation, which is that one of about every 20, 25 years, there's a big idea, but it's not really clear until later. Mm -hmm. And uh, the big idea that had happened in the 80s, but now we take for granted, but wasn't so clear, is that entrepreneurship is not alchemy. Right. It's actually a systematic replicable process that somebody could choose to be an entrepreneur and build a company the way that somebody could choose to be a doctor or right, choose to be a lawyer. Right, exactly. But that was a relatively new idea in the right, 1980s. Right, because everyone still thinks it's sort of this sort of touch by God kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I, I think right. the evidence shatters that idea. And so this course was really about how to challenge our Stanford MBA students. But I remember when I first got the syllabus of the course, the previous versions of it, at the opening line of the syllabus said something like, this will be a course on the mechanics of the new business, new venture entrepreneur and small business manager. And to this day, Kara, I, I don't know why, but I crossed out that opening line of the syllabus mm -hmm. and I rewrote it as this will be a course on how to turn a new venture or small business into an enduring great company. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's a great question. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so, but I decided to keep it as the frame because what I want— But wanted, I shall teach you this, nonetheless. <laughs> well, and I was curious about it, right? Yeah. And, and so I—but uh, I had this instinct of I wanted to challenge my students mm -hmm. to the standard to do more than, like, just start a company and get rich, to try to build something great and lasting, impactful, admirable. That was sort of the idea, this higher standard— so I put it down, and I thought, well, how would you actually find the principles that make that happen? And that's when I intersected with another piece of great who luck. Uh, another professor, Jerry Porras, who was a massively tenured senior dean when I was 30, 31 years old. And I just, first of all— Can to, you be massively tenured? I guess you can. <laughs> he was Could not blast him out, <laughs> me too, or anything else. No, he was and such a wonderful man. But think about this. Here's this seasoned research dean professor— who agrees to partner with me at age—I was 31, he was almost 60—as a peer. Mm -hmm. And he said, let's tackle this question together. And interestingly, today when you look at the, the book, I brought it with me because there's a quote I want to read you from sure. it about levels of responsibility entrepreneurs can take. But when we published the book, we actually put our names in alphabetical order— 
Collins and Porras, even mm-hmm. though he was the senior. Marvelous, great mentor. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jerry said, we need to find a way to research this. And he had we had two insights. The first is all big, great companies were once startups. Mm-hmm. So you can go back to Bill and Dave's garage. You can go back to uh, the startup of Intel. You can go back oh, to Google. right exactly garage, exactly. Yeah. They were all uh, Jay Willard Marriott started with a single A and W franchise, right? Walt Disney started with making a single film, and from there they went on and built these great iconic visionary companies. As we said, we can use history to go back, just like studying the history of the United States or Rome or anything else. Let's go back and study from their Big Bang all the way through their history. But then Jerry had a brilliant insight. He said, yeah, but you always have to ask compared to what? Because if you just study successful companies, you'll find, hey, they all have buildings. Well, you know, having a building doesn't make a great company. The question is, what did they do different? And Jerry had the observation that at the birth of any industry, it's like a Cambrian explosion. Right. There's a whole bunch of new entrants, and most die. But out of that primordial ooze, out of the early days of biotech or airlines or aircraft or automobiles or pharmaceuticals or semiconductors or softwares, computers, whatever, a few or one emerges as the great and lasting company. And so if we can go back and find those and then pair them against others that mm-hmm. were in the same spot, same time, same resources, same potential at that time, and then track them together. And see the, what happened. Exactly. Them. The one right. and what did the one that became great do different than the mm-hmm. one that did not. And that formed this new method called the historical match pair research method. That led to five years of research that led to Built to Last. Uh, everybody thinks it was a big company book. It was sure. really for the entrepreneur. Then that went from there to Good to Great where we asked the question, well, wait a minute. What if you wake up partway through life and you're just average? Right. Can you break through from Good to Great? And so we took pairs of companies that were both average, then one broke through for at least 15 years of great results and the other didn't. That then led to the third of four major books, which is How the Mighty Fall, because given enough time, some of your once great companies will right. fall. Yes. And Which you see in tech happening exactly. really quickly. And it's not that we were wrong, that they, they were great at one point in their history. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it interesting, because studying how once great enterprises fall is just as interesting, in my sure. mind, it's more interesting, than how they become Although great. Although some might consider it inevitable. Like, you I don't cannot avoid it. I refuse to capitulate to the idea right. that it's inevitable yet. But how it unravels, how you fall from great to good, to mediocre to bad, to irrelevant, to gone, when it's so senseless. And there's kind of five stages of decline that we found in that. Just a little thing to put in. Um, if we get to the five stages of decline, interesting question is Silicon Valley showing any of those signs as an overall ecosystem? Right. We might talk about that. Sure. Then, uh, finally, the last book, Great by Choice, goes back to our entrepreneurial roots with my colleague, Morton Hansen, where we took kind of more modern tech startups in highly turbulent industries that went from IPO to 10 times their industries in contrast to others that kind of got clobbered by that turbulence. That's where we pick up software, semiconductors, biotechnology, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. Zoom way out, 30 years of work. That's all started in 1988. It's now 2019. 6,000 years of combined corporate history mm-hmm. done on a rigorous method, four major studies, which then led to kind of 12 principles that correlate, nothing can be causal, correlate strongly with those that become and sustain greatness with those that Become don't. and sustain. Become and sustain. And sustain for me has always been a minimum of 15 years. Some make it 50 or more. 
And I think that the key is to not just have one of these kind of quick flashes and then you just – everybody made a bunch of money and cashed out. That, that's just the opposite of, of that. that this, is, this is really about built to last, not built to flip. And, uh, and then there are the extension monographs like for the social sectors and mm-hmm. turning the flywheel and so forth. But that's the basic arc. So, so talk about turning the flywheel. So you had, you had a lot of impact. You did a lot of consulting with companies also. Well, I don't really do much consulting. I, uh, I, I think of myself as – so after Built to Last, mm-hmm. I decided uh, in some ways a little, a little like you. I mean you're, you're kind of an entrepreneurial journalist, mm-hmm. right? Yes, you, you, a reportrepreneur. You, uh, is that what you are? No, I hate that word. <laughs> okay, but, but essentially – If you will not. You decided – to 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 yes. remain a true journalist outside of a traditional yes. journalistic enterprise. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm bad in the newsroom, but go ahead. <laughs> I had to do with my well, thoughts. Well, I uh, I realized uh, that I didn't want to follow a traditional academic path. Sure. So I decided I wanted to become an entrepreneurial professor. And after Built to Last, uh, my wife and I decided to bet our lives on this. It was a big entrepreneurial bet. And I decided I wanted to become a self-employed professor to endow my own chair and grant myself tenure. So uh, left Stanford. I like that. Yeah. And, and well, I didn't know if it would work, and right. Joanne was like, well, Why here not? we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Kind of described it as our Thelma and Louise moment, except mm-hmm. we were launching off and wanted to get sure. to the other side. And uh, set up my own research lab in Boulder. I've always remained, in my mind, a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, over 50% of my time goes to new research and writing and thinking. 30% of my time to teaching. And so when executives come to my lab in Boulder, I never give them answers. Mm-hmm. All I do is ask them questions. Mm-hmm. And I challenge them with ideas because... I can't presume to know what they should do with their companies. I'd be very arrogant. Right. Instead, I'd rather teach them principles and say, let me push you with hard questions, how to think about this. So I remain a researcher, somebody driven by curiosity, a questioner uh, with some principles to push people on. Um, I never give people answers or tell them what they should do. All right. Well, so talk about turning the flywheel. And then yeah. in the next part, part, I want to talk about some of the principles you're talking yeah. about. Talk about the concept of what turning the flywheel. I mean, yeah. obviously, in Silicon Valley terms, it's like getting something going mm, so yeah. that it really gets going. So let's— uh, It's not just turning it. It's yeah. making it go like a turbine. So one, Yeah, exactly. So right. so one of, the, one of the key principles that came out of Good to Great is— uh, the flywheel principle, and it really got uncovered in the good to great research. And essentially, think about it this way. Well, the way something becomes great looks to those peering in from the outside is different than the way it feels on the inside. Looking in from the outside, it can look like this big instantaneous breakthrough. All of a sudden, something happened overnight. And But if you really look on the inside, it's like turning a giant heavy flywheel. The process is like you start pushing in, in an intelligent and consistent direction. After a lot of effort, you get one giant slow creaky turn. You don't stop. Right? You keep pushing, and then you get a second turn, and then you keep pushing, and then you get four and eight and 16 and 32 and 1,000 and 100,000 and a million. And then at some point, that flywheel's got all this cumulative momentum. It's building, building, building. And when you try to jump past the flywheel, you almost never end up producing a great result. That was one of the key findings that came from, from good to great. And in 2001, the reason why this monograph exists, in 2001, I went up to Amazon. Mm-hmm. It was in the wake of the dot-com bust. Right, and they were in trouble. Exactly. And I was asked to uh, spend some time with Jeff Bezos and the executive team and some other key people. This was the Amazon.bomb phase. This was a very difficult time. It was a dark time. It was was like October of 2001. Yep, Yep, I remember. And I went up there, and all I did, again, I teach the ideas. And I taught the ideas from good to great and built to last. Mm -hmm. But I did leave them with a challenge. I said, this is a really dark time, but don't respond to it as a crisis. Don't respond to it as kind of an event. Respond to it by recommitting to building the flywheel. Now, the wonderful thing about great students and 
Jeff Bezos and company are really thoughtful, smart people. They take an idea, and then they took it even further. So they took the flywheel and they said, we're going to make the flywheel ours. Mm -hmm. And they did something that uh, both surprised and delighted me, which was they took the flywheel principle that had come from good to great, and then they said, let's diagram how our flywheel works. And Mm -hmm. we can create the compounding momentum of our flywheel. So that flywheel, it essentially was, we offer you know, lower prices on more stuff, if we do that. Now, notice there's inevitable momentum and logic. If we do that, we're going to increase customer visits. If we do that, we can't help but get more third-party sellers. And if we do that, then we can't help but expand the store and extend distribution. If we do that, we're going to raise revenues per fixed cost. And if we do that, we can lower prices and more stuff. And around it goes. And if you stand back and you think about the Amazon story, what is it? It's that, it's for a big chunk of it, it's that flywheel turning and building and compounding momentum, mm-hmm. extending mm-hmm. all the artificial intelligence, machine learning, or technology accelerators. So I was first teaching. Then I became a student watching mm-hmm. how they applied the idea. And then I started just challenging people who would come to my lab. I would say, you should do for yourself what Amazon did for itself. What's your flywheel? How does it turn? What are the links? What's the inexorable logic? Show me where it's working and where it's not. And I found that it created this tremendous sense of aha for folks, especially if they had to think about that causal linkage, right? Mm-hmm. That's the key is the yeah, causal if, if linkage. If so, then this, if then so, this, and then, then it goes this. back. Yeah, it's then... not a, a list of things right. you want to do drawn as a circle. Right. It's an inevitable building. That uh, lead back to the original. will drive B. B will drive C. C will drive D. So you got to get the logic right. And I found that people found the whole exercise really powerful when they took the principle of the flywheel, then did for themselves what Amazon did for themselves. So enough people finally said, have you ever shared this with people? Mm -hmm. I said, well, other than challenging you, no. Mm -hmm. They said, you should actually codify that idea extend the flywheel principle from good to great. And so I decided to write so a monograph. So you picked out the one, the one principle from it yeah. that you thought was the most important? For that, today. For today. Yeah. And why is that? Why do you? Well, I don't know if it's the most important for today because I still go back to the idea that I think we need leaders who have the level five sense of responsibility for something bigger to the world uh, and to what they're trying well, we'll to build. We'll get to that. And we're going to yeah. come to that. Right. I still think we we. We need that desperately. We need that level five ethic. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how you really build, uh, particularly in today's world, if you can get the compounding momentum of your flywheel in a world that wants you to do something quick and overnight, Mm -hmm. uh, it's an enormously powerful thing. And what I found, though, is that part of what stimulated me to write it was I would hear, for example, in Silicon Valley, people would say, we have our flywheel. And I'd look at it and go, that's not right. Mm -hmm. They're not getting the causal linkage. They've just drawn some stuff as a circle. And I felt kind of as the person who first brought forth the idea, a sense of responsibility to say, if you're going to use the concept, mm-hmm. let me share with you how to use it. Right. right. Rather, than, so, rather than just say this, then this. Yeah, exactly. How is that different? How is what they're doing different? Well, sometimes what I find is that people confuse a really deep understanding of why the flywheel really works with kind of an aspirational set of steps. What I'd like, we, we want to do we want to do customer service and fast delivery and, you know, increasing right. capital. And we'll list, okay, we'll list them all out. Now let's just draw a circle. Well, that's not a flywheel. That's mm-hmm. just saying we have a flywheel when it's just a list of things you want to do. And the real key is to force yourself to find that underlying logic and to be really, really rigorous that every single point that you can say, if we do B, we'll be thrown inevitably into C. Right. And so forth. As and momentum. As, as momentum. Depending on what will. it does. And, and then 
then to stay with it long enough. Right. Because what happens is people say, oh, we got 100 turns on the fly. Well, we're bored with that. Let's start a new one. No. Mm-hmm. The real power comes when you compound it over a long period of time. So I just felt a sense of responsibility right. of like, folks, if you're going to talk about it because you do like the word. Do not misuse my concept. Let yeah. me, I'd like to. Well, it's interesting because yeah. they do, they they would do that. Like they don't, they, it, it, because like people are so wanting to get off of whatever they're doing that isn't successful so yeah. quickly. Exactly. Without, you know what I mean? Without, with, without moving too quickly, yeah. I guess. And it's about deep understanding in the end. Mm-hmm. Let me just, there's a quote uh, that sure. I put let me, in the Sure, let me monog- read that and then we'll get to our yeah, next there's, section. There's two quotes I brought today, but one that's in, in this monograph, and again, I want to credit uh, a great mentor of mine, Robert Berkelman, another professor at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I put this in the monograph because he taught this to me when, in 1982. He taught it to a class of students. The greatest mistake in business and life is not outright failure. It's becoming successful without understanding why you were successful in the first place. Bergelman's insight, what the flywheel does is forces you to understand, to really understand why this works so that you can build it over time. Because if it was just, if you don't understand it, you won't be able to stay with it. Okay. This is Jim Collins. He's the author of Turning the Flywheel. We're talking a lot about flywheels. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back with Jim Collins, the author of Turning the Flywheel. Um, we've been talking about a lot of things. One of the things, before we start to talk about sort of some more of the concepts in the book, one of the things you and I just talked about were the idea of uh, level five leadership. Yeah. Explain that, because this yeah. is, it sounds like something I've been banging the drum for yeah. for a while. Yeah, so uh, one of the things we found in our in our research is that if you really ask the question, what separated the really great builders over time from the others. What separated a Bill Hewlett and a David Packard and a, and a Moore and Grove and Noyce? And what separated George Rathman? And what separated... We could go through the list. Catherine right? Graham. Catherine Graham of the Washington mm-hmm. Post, who I think is one of the greatest CEOs of all time. 
And what you find is that uh, it's not about their personality, right? Mm-hmm. As you know, I mean, Catherine Graham's personality wasn't the most magnetic and charismatic. Was shy, I knew her well. Shy, exactly. Yeah, I mean, very. frightened. She described herself as frightened at times and yet incredibly willful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Packard and Hewlett, two very different human beings. Moore and Grove, two very different human beings. Mm-hmm. So what do, what do these great builders share in common? And what we found is what separated them from those that that were didn't build the great companies is this thing called level five. So think of it as... The comparisons had level four leaders and the good to greats had level five leaders. I could explain all the layers in the moment, but that's the main takeaway. Who's level one? Level one is— jackass? Well, level one is really good individual skills. So Mm -hmm. level one is about which uh, levels—basically good technical skills, individual Mm -hmm. skills. Level two is about good team skills. Level three is about you finally learn to manage, which never denigrate that. There are Mm -hmm. a lot of not good managers. Mm -hmm. Level three. Level four is about learning how to lead. But then there's this higher level called the level five. So we didn't find that the great companies had leadership and the comparisons didn't. What we found was that the the, the greatest leaders were the level five leaders and the comparisons were level fours. What's the difference between the five and the four? The essential difference between the five and the four is the answer to a simple question. What's the truth of your ambition? I mean, what are you truly ambitious for? Mm Are you leading in a spirit of service to something that is bigger and more important than you are? Your, what your company's trying to accomplish in the world, its responsibility in the world, uh, and you are ambitious for that thing that's bigger than you, and you have a genuine humility to learn and to grow and adapt and realize your failings combined with this incredible sense of will. So imagine humility and will duality with an ambition for cause and responsibility that is much bigger than you are. Now, let's take someone like Catherine Graham. Personal humility, indomitable will, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you were not going to back her down on the Pentagon Papers, no matter who called from White House or anyone else. Indomitable will, but personal humility. I have so much I have to learn to do this right, but all in service to the sense of responsibility that this is what the post stands for. And this is what we have to do to stand for that. Now, that's the level five ethic. And when you see it, you think about uh, uh, Gordon Moore talking about, you know, he was he was not the most charismatic out there sort of no. wild man. He was a very understated engineer type, but he was incredibly ambitious for how Moore's law could change the world. There's this wonderful quote where he talks in 1972 or three. He says, there's all this unrest happening on campuses. We're the real revolutionaries. Think about where Moore's Law is going to take the world. And now we have to sh- ensure that that's done in mm-hmm. a way that has positive impact, right? right. So that's the level five ethic. And and I, I brought with me, sure. I just want to share sure. with you something. Because I was going back from built to last. From built to last. And uh, I still think one of the greatest entrepreneurial pairs of all time is Bill Hewitt and Dave Packard. We mm-hmm. could talk about what happened to the company after them. But no. I think they set a standard. And I just want to share with you this quote it's from built to last. David Packard. In 1949, so it's not like this stuff is all new, I attended a meeting of business leaders. I suggested at the meeting that management uh, had a responsibility. The word responsibility shows up over and over again. Responsibility beyond that of making a profit for its stockholders. I said that we have a responsibility to our employees to recognize their dignity of human beings. Oh, and by the way, to ensure that they share in the success that they help create. I went on to say that we have a responsibility to our customers, to the community at large as well. Then he goes on to say, 
I was surprised and shocked that not a single person at that meeting agreed with me. While they were reasonably polite in their disagreement, it was quite evident that they firmly believed I was not one of them Mm -hmm. and obviously not qualified to manage an important enterprise. Well, that's interesting. I just had Shoshana Zuboff from Harvard who has the surveillance capital. She was talking about the idea of shifting. That was a wonderful podcast. She she was shifting from from responsibility to a lot of stakeholders versus just the shareholder. And here's David Packard in 1949 Mm -hmm. as a young entrepreneur. I mean, they're only 10 years into their company. They didn't go public until 1957. Right. And when Jerry Porras and I, we had access to all of Bill and Dave's original papers. In fact, I have uh, a uh, was able to actually hold in my hands with Jerry the original type notes from August 23rd, 1937, with Bill Hewlett and David Packard getting together to form their company. It's mm-hmm. like holding the Declaration of Independence sure. or something. But even at the very start of their company, from the very beginning, they were setting forth to say, there's a higher standard of responsibility that we're going to build to. We will adhere to that. We will take consequences for that. And we understand that we're looking always for the genius of the and. It's not, in, in your world today, which you know more about me, it's not platform or responsibility as platform and responsibility. So what do you, how do you look at today? How do you look at today when you think about level? Who is a level five leader from your perspective? Or how do you look at how to get them to this level? Well, I mean, yeah. So the, the second question I know a I little bit more about. I think they're negative fives, but that's yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, the, so um, I'm not a current commentator. I'm a historian, right? right? So I, I tend to look through models from history, if you will. It'd be like talking to somebody who wrote a biography of Truman rather than talking about, mm-hmm. say, current politics. And I tend not to go uh, so much uh, in, in the current world. Although I would argue that a couple of the people that, just let me highlight, the, a couple that hit me from your show mm-hmm. that I think people can go back and listen to, uh, Maria Ressa from, mm-hmm. uh, from the Philippines. Yep. I mean, you want to talk about somebody, service to cause, personal humility, indomitable will, oh, and they might throw me in jail? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's level five, mm-hmm. right? And, and so somebody who says, well, it's hard to do in today's world, show me somebody who's doing something harder. Mm-hmm than what she's doing. I came away from that thinking, okay, level five's alive and well, and you feel small mm-hmm. when you listen to her. Mm-hmm. You wonder, what am I doing right. in the world? Right? Yep. You just sort of feel like, wow, no matter what I've done, it doesn't compare. Uh, Rose Macario mm-hmm. from Patagonia, Yvonne Yvonne Chouinard, right? Yvonne, and then he had Christine McDivitt earlier, who used to, I used to uh, write a case on her at Stanford and had mm-hmm. her come and spend time with all my students. In fact, I have a video with her in the 1989 earthquake because she was my guest that day. We have the whole thing on oh, tape. Wow. It was really quite wow. remarkable and yeah. scary, actually. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and then, and, and Yvonne put in place in the company from the very beginning. We have a purpose as a this company. This was the founder who the still founder, controls, still, still, still controls. owner, full owner, right? Full and owner. then, but he's kept that alive all the mm-hmm. way along and he's been very clear to make sure that the company remains true to its principles. And then you listen to Rose Macario on, on your podcast. She is absolutely passionate. You may or may not agree with what they're about, but the point is, they know what they're about, mm-hmm. and they're they're willing to learn that again. The, the humility and the will in service to cause that is bigger than self. That's the level five. They're out there. Mm-hmm. The Imger guy, another one. Hey, we yep. don't have we 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 have these values. Don't tell me it's not hard. The whole point of level five is to do what's hard. 
the right way. So how does it get away? Where, who, where do people get those principles to do that? Because, again, right now we're in a period, and you don't have to comment on the particular people. Where yeah, I'd love to ask like, you, actually. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think they have had them in the first place. Yeah. I don't yeah. think they had the, the values in the first place at all. I think yeah. it was just growth, growth, growth. I think growth was their value, and mm-hmm. therefore, or engagement, or virality. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I had Nicole Wong on talking about this. This she was a lawyer for both Twitter and Google. And one of the things she said is, if you depends the architecture of what you're building, mm-hmm. like what you the architecture and the the what you what you build for is what you get essentially. So yeah. if you're building for virality, uh, speed, and engagement, you get this pile of toxic waste that we yeah. have now running yeah. across. Well, so tech. so first I don't think it's it's it, or it, addiction it, or we get whatever it's none of it's po- like n- mm. all it's all built for that, yeah. not for not the last for sure, but definitely to take advantage of of weaknesses, I think. So when we go back and we look historically and you go back to that primordial ooze, mm-hmm. if you will, the birth of industries, right. you do find a different kind of strain in, you know, you can look at Gordon Moore and, and mm-hmm. uh, Andy Grove and you can look at the, the, the founders of eBay, I think, mm-hmm. had more of the level five orientation. They did. Yeah, absolutely. Was, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's nothing about technology that says you can't be this way. Mm-hmm. The, it is uh, – does, does somebody have to have it from the very beginning? Uh, um. I think people can evolve and grow, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe there's something that they evolve and grow in surprising ways, uh, although I think that Steve Jobs always had an ethic of wanting to do so much more, but he himself had to learn and grow. There was Absolutely. a Steve Jobs 1.0, Steve Jobs 2.0 in the end to make Apple a great company that didn't depend on him. It's an incredible journey. Uh, if, you, if you stand back and look at Bill Gates— I mean, there's somebody— Let's try not to, but go ahead. Okay, no, I'm yeah. kidding. No, no, but, he has but, a journey. You're right. I well, Having seen it, yes. Exactly. So, yeah. so I come away with optimism that challenged with the right models and standards, it's like create, putting a magnet above them, mm-hmm. and some of them will get pulled up. <laughs> and part of what inspired me to want to come talk with you and share, of course, I want to share the flywheel principle because I'd really love people to use it, but also the whole spirit of the idea of are you want to be built to last or built to flip? Do you want to build something that truly does good to great or not? And as I've watched the whole kind of current evolution of Silicon Valley, I found myself thinking, I almost want to go back to be the professor at Stanford again and have all my students and say, folks, let me challenge you back with this standard. Mm-hmm. There's more. There's Packard. There's Catherine Graham. There's the folks on your podcast we talked about. There's uh, George Rathman. There's George Mark. These are the models. Mm-hmm. And they are as relevant to us today as ever before. But, Jim, they're old. But, like, that's what that, that's well, the mentality of it, like that, that there's a new way to do it. It's really – it's an interesting thing because I don't know how you can calculate co- – like if I had to think of like what's – you know, when I, a lot of companies that covered early on did have like – Goals. They had they mm-hmm. had they written out goals of what they wanted to do, yep. and then I remember being super struck by Google's, which was essentially suck up all the world's information. You know what I mean? I think it, that, that that's my short version of it, which isn't really a value. It's just a it's just a goal mm-hmm. versus a value, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't to inform and keep the world a more open and tolerant place. It mm-hmm. wasn't. You know what I mean? It was. They had the don't be evil thing, but that was kind of strange and odd. So here's what here's what. Uh, the research. That's a would. negative. Like, yeah. not be good, just don't be evil. Right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, let me let me kind of step back though and, and articulate mm-hmm. what I I uh, think is a deep enduring principle mm-hmm. to aspire to. And my work has always been about trying to get the principles, and I think principles cut across time. I don't think that the notion of being a level five leader was for a given era, not for today. 
I think it's a choice. I don't think that the, the, the principle of whether you want to build a flywheel or just do a flip, I think that's a choice. There's a fundamental principle in uh, built to last as a primary finding. It's a duality called preserve the core and stimulate progress. Mm-hmm. And this duality, as I stand back, Jerry and I worked very hard six years to get kind of mm-hmm. one idea. It's the idea that there's a genius of the and, and I believe this is true across all time and all social systems, that you've got a constant tension between preserving something that's really core, and that core would— That is, worked, that got you there. Well, it, no, it's, it's actually core as in a core philosophy that's about a purpose beyond just making money and a deeply— held set of values mm-hmm. that you're not going to compromise and truly hold them. And you like, stick to it. Yeah. Beyond held, brand. Beyond brand. Beyond brand. No, it's like, right. it's not what we do. It's not how we succeed. It's what we stand for. And we would even succeed less if that's what's required to live mm-hmm. to that. The other side is stimulate progress. And that's all about your strategies, your goals, your uh, big audacious objectives, uh, the momentum you want to build, the success you want to have in the world, right? And what you need to do is to do both of these at the same time all the time. What is truly our core purpose? What is truly our core values? Preserve that core and genius of the end. Stimulate progress. All the and, and the the key is to do both. My challenge for everyone is to say that idea is timeless and durable. Well, one of the problems is when you stick to the first part. Yep. You can stay in old ideas, right? Correct. That that it can it can veer into that, right? There's a core, and then there's not wanting to change because you don't want to change. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. The core is about what you stand for in a set of values as distinct from a set of practices. Okay. Right? So how did HP struggle later? It confused values and practices. Coffee and donuts at 10 in the morning is not a value. It's a practice. And Mm -hmm. if it no longer serves you, academic tenure, freedom of inquiry is the value. Academic tenure is the practice. And Mm -hmm. if the practice is no longer working, right? Now think about journalism. For you, core independence of thought. Mm -hmm. I have to be the independent objective questioner. Practices. I don't have to be at a newspaper. I can do that through podcast. Mm -hmm. So you're changing practices, but trying to stay true to the core. And that's the great trick. And so I I look at what you've been doing is exactly Mm -hmm. that. It's there's Kara's core. But the practices are really I have different. No idea. How yeah. exciting! So there you are. That I've practiced in conflict without knowing it. Um, so when you do that in a company, how difficult is that to be able to do that? That that's an eternal from it's what a, you're. It's a constant, constant, constant that constant doesn't change with time. exactly. And and so and and, and interestingly, um, and I'm not going to wait wait into current events, but even the founding of our country was founded on this yep. idea. You have on the one hand the core. We hold these truths to be self-evident, articulated three different times the Declaration, the Gettysburg Address, mm-hmm. and the I Have a Dream speech. Right. They're all statements of our national 100%, core. Right. right? Different words for different times, but that's our national core. Then we write a constitution, and that, that one of the things that separates great founders, and those are some of the greatest entrepreneurs in history, mm-hmm. founded a country. Really, they are. Right? And one difference between those who build the great companies and not is the, the, the not ones are time tellers. I just have the right idea for the time. And the ones who build the great ones are clock builders, right? They can build a clock that can tell the time over time, mm-hmm. even if they're not there. The Constitution was the clock. Now, notice something in the Constitution. They put in place, for one of the first times in history, if not the first time, an amendment mechanism. Why did they do that? Because they knew 
that over time the practices would have to change. It's a famous quote of Jefferson. Exactly. So preserve the core even with different words in different settings. You don't get up at the Washington Monument and reread the Declaration. You do the I Have a Dream speech. Mm -hmm. Stimulate progress, preserve the core. We can do better, stimulate progress, go back to the core. And so I think the challenge always is to separate out these two and say, well, you have to live to both. If I were coming into Silicon Valley again today, for all these folks who are building some companies that will change the world, I would ask them the same question. You've got a lot of progress over here, but what's the core? What is the version of the Declaration of Independence for you that makes it such that over time you will have both sides of the coin? Is there a core to the idea of tech anymore? Is there, has there been? So I, I, again— There was— well, see, I think, again, it's it's choices that people can make. And also, I think as people grow older, they start asking themselves questions beyond success. Mm-hmm. How is my life useful? I mean, after you've made so much money, the question is, what does your life add up to? Well, I had Chamath Palihapiti on for that one. Exactly. I, don't know if you to that. I did, I did yeah. hear that one, exactly. Yeah. And he's going going to the soul of the Basta. whole thing. Yeah, well, he's gone. He's yeah. gone a little bit off the yeah. <laughs> down in the deep so, end. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and I think that Again, that's where I go back to, for example, the conversation with the, you had with the fellow from Imgur. Mm-hmm. He's putting a stake in the ground to say, no, we are going to have a core mm-hmm. while we figure out the difficulties of this technology. Mm-hmm. That's our challenge. So do you think that holds companies back now to do that? To, to hold to their core? Yeah. What do you mean by holding back? The, the bigger companies are ones without them that I would say maybe Amazon has one. So Amazon, I think, is an interesting case where I, they're, they're, they're huge today and they have massive momentum and there's all the issues that can come with that. But do I personally believe without having great depth of knowledge of this um, that Jeff Bezos' spirit overall is to preserve the core simulate progress? My instinct is yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, again, I go back to it's a it's a choice you can make as to which side you were on. Why did he get in? I, he never got into this because he just wanted to flip something, or mm-hmm. you know, it's to build something mm-hmm. and to change things. And you can look at there have been tech leaders throughout history that have come down on this side. I don't see any reason why we can't have tech leaders today that can come down on this side. All right, we're here with Jim Collins. He's the author of Turning the Flywheel. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles, and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. 
In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. We're here with Jim Collins. He's the author of Turning the Flywheel. Obviously, Jim is really famous for Built to Last, Good to Great, and How the Mighty Fall. When you think about writing that book, the first book, Built to Last, how does it, you were talking, you're talking about enduring things, that Mm -hmm. it endures, the ideas endure. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the principles that endure, that you still think endure, you know, that you note in this book, obviously using this flywheel concept of understand, you're essentially saying, understand exactly who you are and how you make things happen. Yeah. Right. And how one thing leads to another in in a really cogent way. So let me um, maybe just take a moment to tick through a few of the principles that after now 30 years of of work and research and thinking about it, I'm highly confident, and one should never say certain in today's world, but I'm highly confident we'll stand the test of time. One is the principle that level five leaders have the potential to build greater things than non-level five leaders. We talked about that earlier. Second is the principle that uh, it all starts not first with what you want to do, but who you want to do things with. The idea of first have the right people, get the right people on the bus, get the wrong people off the bus, Mm -hmm. get the right people in the right seats, then figure out where to drive the bus. Because you may have to change over time, and the most important thing is having the right people. We talk so much about vision. That's great. But great vision without great people is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And the orientation to know the way you build your culture is with your people choices. That's always how you build it. Uh, Another principle is the principle of embracing the genius of the and. When we look over time— This is instead of the but, right? This is like this idea of no buts but the and. We can find the genius of the end. Mm -hmm. We can do preserve the core and stimulate progress, right? We can do platform and responsibility. Mm -hmm. We can do growth and profitability. That's where the genius of the end lies. Uh, the discipline to uh, turn the flywheel, we, there's the whole monograph on that, the notion Keeping that— Keeping going on. And, and, and understanding it and building the momentum right. over a long, long period right. of time. A good right. flywheel lasts 20, 30, 40, 50 right. years. Right. And then when we kind of get out to the built to last, I'm not hitting all 12. Mm-hmm. I'm just hitting a few to give us some touch points. Uh, when you, the, the, one of the things that's really interesting is that innovation is not one of the principles. Interesting. Explain, it's, please. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, that's the God here, apparently, so, allegedly. Okay. So, I agree with you. So what we found is that if you run the analysis, you don't find that the most innovative companies always win. Mm-hmm. More, Snapchat, yeah. Yeah, more important. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, Tellus and Golder in their wonderful book, uh, Will and Vision, show that roughly only 10% of the pioneering innovators end up as the winners in the end. Mm-hmm. And our research, Morton and I studied this in Great by Choice, also showed that. What we find is that there's a threshold level of innovation you need to be at in any given industry. But once you get above that threshold, more and more innovation isn't what distinguishes. Far more important is your ability to scale innovation yeah. rather than to innovate. And, but it's scaling the right innovations, the right big bets. There's a principle we call fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. I write about it in the flywheel monograph, and it wasn't great by choice with, with Morton and I put together. It goes like this. You're an entrepreneur. Imagine you have a certain amount of gunpowder. There's a big ship bearing down on you. You take all that gunpowder, you put it in a big cannonball, and you fire it at the ship. Flies out there, misses, splash in the water. Uh-oh. You, exactly. You turn and you look back, you're out of, of gunpowder. Here comes the ship. But imagine instead you took a little bit of gunpowder, 
you fire a bullet, it misses, right? Fire another bullet, now you're 20 degrees off. Fire another bullet, ping, you hear the side of the ship. And now, now you take your gunpowder, now you put it in a cannonball, and you fire your cannonball, your big bet, on a calibrated line of sight. What we found is the principle is not innovate or not. It's actually fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. Calibrate and then place your big bets to scale proven innovations. That separates the big winners over time, and that's what Windows Right, was. that's interesting. So, you know, you think about that in today's thing. You have a Snapchat, which is highly innovative. Like, it comes up with all the ideas. I used to call, I, I still call uh, Evan Spiegel chief product officer yep. for Facebook. But they do take them, they did at Instagram, take his ideas and did a better job. And then Kevin Systrom, who founded it, said that. He goes, just because someone creates a radio doesn't mean I can't do a better radio. Exactly. And, and we, that was the right thing. The radio is what I'm interested in. Yeah, and it's the real winners are the ones who take, I mean, even think of Amazon. Amazon wasn't the first to do online book selling, mm-hmm. right? No, who was there? It was books.com, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, and, and what they did was they, they took somebody else's bullet, mm-hmm. used that, said that's calibrated. They're the ones that scaled it up into a cannonball. But the real thing is that even once you do the big bet, the big hit, it's then the ability to turn it into the real compounding momentum of the flywheel. That separates much more than having the innovation. Having the idea. Exactly. Well, that's and sort of the plane, The planes are covered with the bottoms of pioneers idea. It 90%. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, Tellison Golder's book is really worth reading on that, by the way. So you, that that's a, one of the principles I increasingly see, and it's also how you extend a flywheel. You got a flywheel, it's turning in memory chips, you fire a bullet on a thing called a microprocessor, later you transfer all the momentum, keep the same flywheel, but you can really extend it with the microprocessor. It mm-hmm. was bullet to cannonball, right? Mm-hmm. If you study history, that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. And you'll know, bullet to cannonball to flywheel, bullet to cannonball to flywheel. Wow. Repeated. Oh, that's exactly the process. Mm-hmm. And we could go so through. Much <laughs> <laughs> so much iron. So much iron, right. <laughs> so, uh, so think about this as I've got these stages, right? Disciplined people. Level five is first. Disciplined thought, right? The genius of the end. A number of other things in that. Disciplined action, bullets, cannonballs, flywheel, et cetera. Then there's this fourth stage, building to last. Mm-hmm. And the principles in that we've already hit except for one. One is the principle of productive paranoia and staying mm-hmm. out of the five stages of decline. Two is be a clock builder, do more clock building, less time telling. And third is preserve the core, stimulate progress that we spent a good amount of time on. Those are principles. And then there's one last one. Mm-hmm. And this was just personally delights me. Most business people don't like this principle, but it's a multiplier that multiplies everything else. Have you ever wondered how much of it comes down to luck? A lot. Okay. So No, well, no. I, right, I'll, I'll so, so, yeah. So, what do you think? You, you've Not as much as you th- you think you make your luck in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. So, this, so, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's you see the, luck. Smart people see luck. Exactly. I, to, to deny luck is right. denial. Yeah, I was do, discussing this with my son the other day, actually, oddly enough. So, Morton, uh, Hanson, and I said, when we did Great by Choice, we have to actually ultimately answer that question. If you don't actually answer the question, how much of it just comes down to luck? It could be that all these principles are like an equation where you got a bunch of them and then at the end there's just this big plus L and Mm -hmm. you better hope you get a big plus L or maybe not. Mm -hmm. So Morton and I sat down and we said, we're going to define, quantify, and study luck. luck." Mm -hmm. It took us three years to figure out how to do it. And what we did, Morton's insight was that luck's an event. Luck is any event that meets three tests. A, you didn't cause it. B, it has a potentially significant consequence, good or bad. Mm -hmm. And C, it came as a surprise. 
in some form, either timing or amount or, uh, or that it happened at all. Any event that meets that. Now, once you know what a luck event is, then if you study history, you can actually count luck events. See how big they are. Were they good? Were they bad? Then you can take your pairs of companies and you can track them over time and say— Which one? took advantage of the luck of it. Exactly. So what you do is then you ask the question, do the big winners, are they luckier? And you can actually test the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And what we found was this. When you do the match pairs over history, there is no evidence that the winners are luckier. Mm -hmm. That zeroes out. They did not get more good luck. They did not get less bad luck. More bad luck, yeah. Right. They did not get bigger spikes of luck. They didn't get better timing of luck because it could be path contingency. But what they get is better return on their luck. So what happens hmm. is two companies get the same return luck event. Roll. It's it's ROL. Yeah. Return on luck. <laughs> Think about digital research yeah. and Microsoft getting the same luck event at the exact same moment in time. Yeah, IBM, the IBM walking in the, exactly. Right. Who got the return on the luck. So it wasn't luck. It was yes, there's luck. But it's the return on luck. Now if we go back we could go through all the history of the best of Hewlett and Packard's eras and Noyce and Moore and George Rathman and Anjan, et cetera. If you really study it, there's this moment in time where you get a luck event. Something breaks your way. And what the really key thing is at that moment then, are you going to be the one that jumps on that and makes more out of it and builds it over time than others? And are you going to protect yourself against the downside luck that can kill you? Right. That's one of the it's a, what we found is that's sort of a multiplier. It's like fifty percent is sure, what you do I with the that, unexpected. Yeah. yeah, but I think people do see it's like seize your opportunities, right? It's sort of that same idea of, of that you see things that can help you at the right time and pay attention to them. Yes, and I'll, but again, people will look and as my mentor um, uh, Michael Ray said, you know, comparison is the primary sin of modern sure. life, sure. right? Yeah. And so when you look out and you look at people who are successful or companies as successful, it's easy to say, well, they were just lucky. Mm-hmm. And when you actually clinically oh, no, study it, not at all. But there's an, it's an old, it's smarter to be lucky than it's lucky to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And it isn't so much that you make your own luck because your bad luck, mm-hmm. you, you, health issues, mm-hmm. right? You, those are luck events too. You don't cause those. Right. But what do you do with them? What do you do with them? What, what causes you? It's interesting. That's an interesting concept. So finishing up, just give me some, some where do you see this all going? Where do you, if you had to, if you were 30 years old mm. and studying something, I mean, you obviously can do that now with your lab and things like that, but what do you think the most interesting arena is, especially in tech? I mean, you've, mm. you write a lot about tech. A lot of these companies are tech companies because they sort of have well, been the most interesting companies of the recent era. Among them, there's some other ones. Or what's interesting yeah. to study now? What do you What do you think is? Yeah. Uh, so two answers to that. First, if you go back in history, and mm-hmm. I'm a historian by nature, mm-hmm. you find a tech ingredient. Oh sure, spears are tech. Yes, it, I got exactly. it. Exactly, and yeah. everything. So to sort of yeah. classify things as tech and non-tech has right. always been problematic. 100%. Problematic for me. There are companies for whom what they really deliver is more tech than mm-hmm. others, and we can we can talk, uh, you know, uh, maybe classify them that way. I think what will happen. Uh, I'm not a predictor, but out of this era, and I have a question for you, by the way, before sure. I answer this question. How's the 2019 bubble different than 1999? This one, it's different. How's it different? 
you know, it's interesting because a lot of people weren't through that, didn't go through that one. But the ones who did know what comes later. I mm-hmm. guess there's a lot more knowledge of this mm-hmm. industry. It was, a, it was a nascent industry when that happened, I yeah. think. It was very nascent, so nobody saw it coming. And now people see it coming, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and do you think, what impact do you think that will have? People are a little, they're not quite so frothy. It's mm-hmm. not quite so, they're, they're more cynical about the froth. They mm-hmm. know what it is, I guess. Yeah. That before they really believed it, it was sort of, it was hard to get them off the idea that this, you know, that not every flower grows to the sky. And do you think that this one will, uh, that, that there will be somebody writing like your pony book <laughs> two years later, or do you no, think No, because some of these are really significant businesses. Yeah. I don't think you could look at Airbnb, for example, and say, even if it's overvalued or Uber, that it's not a significantly interesting business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, well, would that not have also been true for AOL? No, you could see the end. Some of these yeah. you can't see the end can't for. See the end. Yeah, because yeah. the, the contribution that they can make, whether it's for, profitable is a separate question. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you can, I can't see the end for Uber. I, do, I can't see the end for Airbnb. People need, this is a new way people are thinking about housing or car driving. or so. It's a, it's part of a larger mega trend that mm-hmm. is is the throughput of it. Do yes. you, you know what I mean? So I could see the end of AOL. I could, mm. you could see it. Yeah. Or yeah. you can see it being displaced. I don't quite know what, you know, with Uber, self-driving mm-hmm. will displace the drivers, mm-hmm. I guess. Or Airbnb, I don't know, the way we live, the way how, you know, it's just hard. They're they're part of bigger megatrends, some of these companies. I'm just picking two. Yeah, yeah, and it all depends. Facebook, I can see the end. Yeah, interesting. I can see the end of that. So, historically what happens is that uh, it won, you know, there will be some companies that come out of this era uh, that will be to the this era what Intel and the best of HP and Amgen and Genentech and you know the others in Southwest was in in uh, uh, in airlines and whatever that they will end up standing as the companies that others will learn from to do the next rendition. I don't see that stopping. I'm fundamentally optimistic about the American economic engine and mm-hmm. our ability to build incredible things. And I and I do think. We tend to think our strength as a country is innovation. I think we're good at that. I think our great strength is scaling innovations. I think mm-hmm. that's what we do really, really, well. Do you really see challenges well. from China? Have you been studying what's going on I in haven't been companies? studying. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I love China, the history of China. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm a historian. I wouldn't have it. That would it. be an interesting place to do one of your labs, yeah. like how yeah. they're, scale, how they're yeah. scaling. I think they're quite adept at that. Yeah, and I think it would be fascinating today to see who's going to grow and adapt and mature the the way that some of the other great ones before them did, and I believe that some absolutely will. And not just the companies, I'm talking about the people mm-hmm. as well, because people are ultimately really interesting. There is also the impact, which I pro- you probably haven't studied, is how much this ridiculous amount of wealth has on these people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a really interesting factor. Well, it yeah. changes. They're changed. Yeah. They're changed in ways that they don't realize. Yeah, and do. I think the, it's, it's interesting. Let me just share a little mm-hmm. little story about kind of the kind of the spirit of building something that is kind of independent of the wealth. Mm-hmm. A little over a year ago, um, well, actually, it was two years ago, I ran into, I was at this thing in New York. Was myself and some other people were being recognized for something. One of the other people there was Jack Bogle. Mm-hmm. Jack Bogle kind of brought forth the S&P 500 yeah. index fund. Right. goes all the way back to his Princeton thesis years mm-hmm. and years ago. And I went up to him and I said, Mr. This is, Bo- Fidel- this is who uh, do you found? Vanguard. Vanguard, right. Would you write about Vanguard yeah. in, the, in the flywheel right. monograph? But he was 88 at the time, and I, or 87. I went up to him and I said, Mr. Bogle, I don't, I don't mean to intrude on your space, mm-hmm. but um, 
I really admire what you've built with Vanguard, and I've known them for mm-hmm. some time. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, Jim, I've read your books. You should. You, we should have a conversation. Do you ever get to Philadelphia? Uh-huh. And I said— Hell, uh, I will. I said, I said, I can get to Philadelphia, <laughs> right? So afterwards, I go back to Boulder, and I I, compo- I say to Joanne, I say, I mean, how many Jack Bogle days are left? Right. I don't want to steal one. Mm-hmm. And Joanne said, give him the chance to right. say he's too busy. So mm-hmm. I finally send him an email, and I say, dear Mr. Bogle, uh, you know, we cross paths at this thing. I don't mean to intrude on your side. I understand if you're too busy, but mm-hmm. I would fly out to the Philadelphia area to see you and have the conversation. I get this marvelous email back. Dear Jim, first of all, it's Jack, uh, not Mr. Bogle. I'm so glad you followed up. I wanted to follow up with you, but I didn't want to seem pushy. <laughs> <laughs> so so I get on the plane and I fly yeah. out there. I spent a day with him. He's 88. Uh-huh. Okay. And I'm sitting Sharpest there. Attack, right? now, now think about this. So first of all, this is a man, because of the structure that he built, mm-hmm. he deliberately built a structure that would ensure he would never be a billionaire mm-hmm. because the funds are owned by the fund owners. Mm-hmm. So he did very well, but he could have easily been a billionaire. Right. He instead built a system that would serve the investors. I'm sitting there with this 88-year-old man who's young. The eyes, Mm -hmm. the intensity coming out of the eyes of the mission he has for serving the everyday investor as alive as ever. We sat there for six hours as he talked about the mission of his life and what he's working on, still working on his next book. He'd had a heart transplant. Oh, wow. He had the intensity of when he first wrote his Princeton thesis. Mm -hmm. And then it took us 20 minutes to walk across a courtyard. The body was failing, Mm -hmm. but the intensity was still there, and he died a year later. Mm -hmm. I come away from that, and I say, what's so interesting is Jack Bogle never got confused by money. Mm -hmm. He understood the mission of what he was trying to do, never deviated from it, and he's sitting there at 88 as driven, as passionate, as energized as when he was 18. Yeah, yeah I remember the last interview I did with Steve Jobs, Walt Bosberg exactly. and I did. Exactly. Most alive person in the room. Exactly. I have to say, he really was sick as could be. You could yeah. see death but right behind his neck. But you know? the eyes. A hundred, he kept insisting what he was going to do, what he, this and yep. that, and still as irritating as ever, and yep. you know everything, the whole package. And yeah. it was really, I'll never forget that, and it was like, that guy's going to die soon, and he still doesn't think he's going to, which was not just not going to die, but that he still was, con- he didn't care. Yeah, I got. And he was I, dead I, three months. Four exactly. Months later. I got some phone calls from him uh, as he was thinking about the future of Apple mm-hmm. and had some questions about laying those foundations. And he was driven as ever, like he just his clock was running out, mm-hmm. but the intensity wasn't. Yeah, it's true. And so my, you know, if if you end up making a lot of money, fine. But the real question is, if you found something that will animate and motivate you as much as when you were talking to Steve Jobs mm-hmm. shortly before his end. And I was talking with Jack Bogle shortly before his end. That's the standard to shoot for, mm-hmm. to find that. I don't know what uh, – for. Uh, if you think about the money that comes to people, if that was never the goal, it probably won't corrupt them. But if deep down underneath it was the goal mm-hmm. – you get what you got. Anyway, Jim, this has been riveting. I could talk to you for hours, and I will have you back on. Uh, wh- what are you studying next? Ah, so quickly. Uh, so, I'm, okay, so quickly. I'm 61. Mm-hmm. I've got hopefully 30 years yeah, of work. I'm inspired time. by you look people. Pretty fit. Yeah, inspired by people like Jeff. I was Bogle. thinking, how fit are you? You look so fit. Uh, I'm still a rock climber, okay. but I, I'm I'm turning my attention to things like K-12 education because mm-hmm. I care deeply about our kids. And second, um, I'm really interested in the question that John Gardner, another mentor teed up, 
why do some people self-renew better than others Mm -hmm. over the long course of a life? Yep. That's the next big research. That's a great. Project. I got some people for you. I yeah. got Walt Mossberg's one of them. There's yeah. a whole bunch of them. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. You know, I studied years ago the Holocaust and how people survived and some people didn't. No fault of anybody, but it was really interesting. Like all those studies would be really fascinating. Like, mm-hmm. What is it that creeps people in a certain? Mm-hmm. It was. It's just interesting. It's just yeah. how do people self renew and or, yeah. or meet obstacles and go over them compared to others. It yeah. is interesting. That's it is, great, and, and I'm... Uh, that is a great idea for a book. It is, and, and we're doing... I'm applying the match pair method, except it's at people. Because I think it can be replicated. Yes, it can. Do you know what I mean? I don't think people always think it's just your, you know, whatever, your character or whatever, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and, and, and it may actually surprise you when it comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, we were talking earlier about Catherine Graham. Mm-hmm. She didn't expect to be running the post, no. but her renewal to grow into what was on her shoulders. Right. Because she had that responsibility. She was a classy dame. I used yeah. to sit with her at lunches a lot. Oh, boy. I could ask you <laughs> questions about her all day. <laughs> she's, a cl- she's a classy dame. That's yeah. all I'll say about that. And she was a lot of fun. And her son is wonderful, Don Graham. Anyway, thank you, Jim. It was great talking to you. Thanks great for coming on the too. show. And thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. You can find me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Jim, where can people find you online and all your various and sundry activities? Uh, JimCollins.com is an e-teaching website. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably the best place. All right. And do you have a Twitter? Do you do uh, the Twitter? Yes, at Level5Leaders. Okay, level Oh, that's good. Yep. Now that you're done with this, uh, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.